Welcome to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtash Ahadi. Each week, I dive into deep and intimate conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique perspectives about the most interesting topics of our time. Phuc Tran and his family fled Saigon, Vietnam when he was one and a half years old and landed in a small and predominantly white town called Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Now he's a high school Latin teacher, tattoo artist, father, husband, and most recently, author of his memoir, Saigon. Phuc's story is one of identity, understanding who he is between two different cultures, facing systematic racism, searching for a sense of belonging, and the determination to heal from past traumas so he can show up fully as a father for his own children. In this episode, we hear Fuchs experience feeling like a misfit, how finding punk rock music made him feel like he was seen, heard, and understood, and how this later shaped his philosophies as a high school teacher for his own students. We dive into transformative moments in Fuchs' childhood where his understandings of his cultural identity were formed as he tries to piece together what it means to be Vietnamese and to be American at the same time. We also discuss the process of writing his memoir and how it has allowed him to feel closer and more empathetic to his parents. The reason why I wanted to share Phuc Tran's story is because it mirrors my personal story in many ways. How families both sought refuge in the United States because our homelands were at war. We are both sponsored by Lutheran organizations. And we both found a sense of belonging amongst our friends in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Although our stories are uniquely our own stories, they are similar in that they are both American stories. Stories of loss, reinventing oneself, and finding a sense of home. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. So, without further ado, I bring you Fook Tran. Fook Tran, welcome to the podcast. How are you today, sir? Great. How are you doing, Bakhtas? I'm doing well. Fook, it's wonderful to have you here because I have to say that your story in many ways is fascinating to me because your story takes place, actually your story starts from a place of conflict and confusion and miraculous finding of one's family to then coming to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is where I was raised as well. And so your story in many ways, in some ways, mirrors the story of of my family. And so for that reason, I'm just really curious to kind of better understand your lived experience as an immigrant to the United States, an immigrant to a small town, a beautiful picturesque town like Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and what that experience was like for you in terms of finding a sense of belonging, finding a sense of home, and kind of how you think about that now as a full-fledged adult in retrospect. And this all comes out in your book, Saigon, which we're really talking about so for that reason, Fook, I really wanted to speak with you about your life story. And so I think probably the best way to kind of start this conversation is to ask a simple question. And it's this, it's how do you describe what you do now? Uh, it's complicated, right? Um, there's sort of like the things that I do to pay the bills. <laughs> and then there are the things that I do because um, they're my responsibility. You know, like I think you can tease that apart in any number of ways. Like, and obviously I'm a, a spouse, like a husband, um, and I'm a father, so I think those things are very high at the top of my lists. And then I'm also a tattooer, so I you know, own and operate a tattoo shop here in Portland. And then for the last 22 years, I was a high school Latin teacher. Um, I took the, this past year off because I thought I was going to be on a book tour and 
just couldn't juggle two jobs and parenting and being a you know a husband and also you know going on a book tour but you know hashtag pandemic so here we are <laughs> but you know this it is what it is so yeah so so those are all the things i mean obviously like i've got other relationships that i'm trying to maintain <laughs> friendships you know being a sibling all those things i think a lot of people can empathize with that sentiment in terms of having plans and then having those plans just kind of flipped on their head. And so I really appreciate that backstory. And so what I would like to get into is, can you kind of unpack your family's story as you well know it, as it pertains to the fall of Saigon and how you landed in Carlisle? How did that kind of all manifest? Sure. So, you know, I was born in Saigon, Vietnam. Uh, my grandparents worked for the U.S. Embassy. My dad was a lawyer. And I think, you know, he had political aspirations, you know, so he had, you know, designs on running for office, I suppose. And he was the eldest son of his side of the family. So I think, you know, he was sort of carrying that banner, right, the Tran flag, you know, and, and moving forward with it. And, and then the Civil War of Vietnam, you know, obviously collapsed or it, it happened. And then the South, South Vietnamese government collapsed and then we fled Vietnam. My grandparents worked for the U.S. Embassy, so we um, we fortunately got evacuated, you know, by the U.S. government along with 130,000 other Vietnamese refugees. And I always want to draw attention to how counterintuitive that humanitarian move was. You know, it was highly unpopular among U.S. citizens that the U.S. intervened in any way with the Viet South Vietnamese, right? And Gerald Ford was, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I don't know him and I haven't read a lot into, you know, sort of the thinking behind that. But as a beneficiary of that decision, that executive order, like, I just think like the amount of empathy and foresight and just sort of good. I mean, they had nothing to gain from that, right? I mean, the US government, you know, I mean, they cut and run all the time, um, unfortunately, you know, so I think I don't, I don't know what was his thinking behind saying, you know, we need to get those people out because they will just be, you know, pushed into a ditch and shot. But anyway, so yeah, so my family uh, left because my, you know, my grandparents were collaborators with the US government. Um, so we left Vietnam and ended up in Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. And so we were there, 12 of our family members um, escaped and we were sponsored by um, some really nice Lutherans in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And, and then that's where, and, and that's where the story begins, I guess. That's great. Now help us understand how old were you when you landed in Carlisle, Pennsylvania? So I was one and a half, um, when we arrived in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. So I have no memory. Uh, my earliest memory is in Carlisle. I don't have any memories of Vietnam or the escape from it, you know, which is interesting because my mother, you know, and I don't know if it was just sort of like trauma or just sort of like turmoil or, you know, if it's sort of like a pre-language cognitive thing. You know, my mom says I was speaking at the time. So, you know, but again, like, I don't, I'm not sure that anybody remembers much from when they were one or two, you know, so, so my earliest memories from when I was like four or five were definitely in Carlisle. Yeah, that's really interesting. Cognitive scientists say that memory starts around the age of three. So that makes a lot of sense. And so let's talk about your early experiences and early thoughts about when you arrived to Carlisle. How would you kind of describe it in your own words as you remember it now? 
You know, I I guess all I can say is that Carlisle for me started out as like it's the only place I knew. And I think it's really disconcerting to think that you are growing up in a place and then slowly have it, you know, sort of have the origami unfold a little bit. And then all of a sudden have this realization that like, this isn't the place that you belong or that some people, not everybody, but some people in the town don't feel like you are a stakeholder or a shareholder in the town. So, I mean, it's the only place that I remember, right? And it's the only place that I grew up and and it's a complicated relationship that I have with it because I, like, I would never use the phrase hometown to describe Carlisle only because I think that has lots of connotations that, that aren't there for me. You know, I mean, Carlisle's a challenge. It's a complicated place. Um, you know, in some ways, like, it's it's so idyllic, you know, like Hanover and High Street, you know, like tree-lined streets and these, like, federalist brick buildings and, you know, sort of this, like, colonial-era architecture. It's, like, so beautiful. It's American in all of sort of the best and worst ways, too, right? That it, it can be really provincial um, and small-minded and with this idea that, like, you fit into a box and if you stay... If you know your place in Carlisle, my, my sense was as I was growing up that if I, if I knew my place then, then, and I didn't rock the boat, that things would be okay. But it, it felt limiting to me. You know, and, and, and let me just say like that, that's also like, a, you know, I left Carlisle as a 17 year old and I really never came back. So, you know, I, you know maybe I would feel different now as an adult um, if I were to live there. You know, and I, I certainly can't speak to what Carlisle is like now because, you know, I have a different lens now, obviously, and, and hopefully more mature. What I'm curious to know about your lived experience is how did this frontier between who you were at home and then who you were outside of the home kind of meet? Like, the thing about the human, the human condition is that we all seek a sense of acceptance from others of who we are. Right, We all seek a sense of belonging. And so what's curious about adolescence is, and being young is all we want to do is find a sense of home through friends. How did that kind of all play out for you in terms of what you were like within the home and then what you became the moment you left your house? Yeah, I mean, I think that's such an interesting question, right? I mean, I think it's it's the nature of being bicultural, right? Like that in my house, you know, like we were speaking Vietnamese and my parents spoke Vietnamese. My dad actually spoke primarily English with me and my brother, but that was mostly to practice um, and improve his English. Also, like in the 70s and the 80s, like the, the American project was really assimilation, right? Which is really, you know, if you read sort of like anti-racist or, you know, sort of theory, like the idea of assimilation is problematic just because what you're doing is you're creating like a hierarchy of cultures, right? Um, but anyway, the, the American project to me, as it seems in the 70s and the 80s, was like the melting pot idea, right? That, you know, everybody is just going to assimilate to being American. You're going to drop all the vestiges of the old country and then you blend in and then everything's going to go great, right? That's certainly what my parents believed, um, you know, and like that was certainly my dad's project. You know, my for my dad, like the priority was for me and my brother to speak, you know, sort of perfect, flawless English without an accent and and he thought that after that, it would be easy street in like a naive way, you know, and even now, like just a few years ago, I think it was like the 40th anniversary of my parents' arrival to Carlisle. It's like the Carlisle paper reached out to my father and interviewed him. And um, he is still, he's really like, for better or worse, like he's really 
still believes in the American dream. He doesn't say that it doesn't, America doesn't have problems, but he'll never say anything sideways about this country. Like, he believes that, like, if you work hard enough and you buy into the system, you can make it. You know, what's funny is, like, my father always thought that, like, the reason that he went from being a lawyer to being working in the tire factory, the Carlisle Tire and Rubber Factory, and then later on Carlisle Syntec, he thought it was because his English sucked, you know? Like, he didn't think about, like, systemic racism, <laughs> you know, or anything like that. I mean, just it wasn't in his vocabulary, right, or, or in, you know, his lexicon to think about, like, larger sort of cultural forces at work. So going back to your original question, like, I think I was living this bicultural life, right, where I, it was one thing at home, and when I stepped out into the world, it was, you know, I was an American kid, or so I thought, or trying to be an American kid. And that certainly was the message from my parents at home, um, was to sort of Americanize, right, and blend in and you know, just be like everybody else. Yeah, there's um, an interesting thing where when you're a minority in a, in a place, all you really want to do is just blend in. And in many ways, that's the opposite of what the American identity is. And what I mean to say is the American identity in some sense requires you to kind of tell people who you are and to stand out individually and kind of bring your gifts to the table. But as in my experience... And I'm wondering if this resonates with you at all is in the context of being an immigrant to a place that's so homogeneous like Carlisle, the feeling that I got was all my parents wanted of me was to keep my head down and to blend in because the more tension that you got, just it was perceived to be negative attention. Yeah, absolutely. Like a thousand percent, like absolutely. And I think you know, what's tricky about that is like the implied conversation there is like, a, is what is my relationship to power, right? Who has power? What is my relationship to those people who have power? Like, what is that power that they have, right? Like, is it like a cultural or a social power? So in some ways, right, like that, that idea of blending in, right, is really like this idea of like accessing privilege, the easiness with which, right, you get a job or, you know, you get accepted in a certain social circles and things like that. I mean, that, I mean, who do, who doesn't want that, right? Like, that seems really natural, right? You know, and I would also say, like, Bakhtash, like, going back to the previous question, you know, that, you know, there's this idea of, like, community, right? And, like, where do you belong or where do you fit in? You know, and I think, you know, as a high school teacher, you know, I think a lot about students and young kids, right, adolescents and what they need, right? And they, for me, like, I often will try and sort of come up with these, like, grand unified theories just because it's fun and interesting to me but I think young kids need to feel valued right they need to feel um, understood and they need to feel seen right like I feel I feel like if you can check off those three boxes for like a teenager I think it's incredibly powerful for them um, and I would say that I did not feel understood valued or seen by my parents for sure you know and and this isn't to fault them you know I think they had a lot of things going on they had their own trauma that they were dealing with, but um, that wasn't my experience in my household. Um, that was my experience with my friend group. That was my experience with a lot of my high school teachers, you know, that I felt, you know, valued, seen, and understood, you know. So so I think that that's where my real community, you know, lay when I was a teenager, at least. Why do you think your parents weren't able to provide the space for you to step into that space where they could see you, understand you, you know, was it because they didn't have the language to a process what they were going through? Was it because 
like was this is this something specific to Vietnamese culture? Like help us better understand how you weren't seen by your parents versus being seen by your friends. I definitely think it's cultural. I think it's linguistic. You know, like I think uh, deep down inside, I am an American teenager. You know, or was an American teenager. Now I'm like an American adult. So like I I had expectations for my parents as parents, right? And for better or worse, like those expectations were informed by American culture. And then my parents had expectations for me, but those, you know, those expectations were informed by Vietnamese culture, right? I mean, like that's that's like a recipe for a disaster, right? I mean, it's uh, <laughs> like, I mean, it's just like so so much misunderstanding, right? Can come from that. A Vietnamese writer, um, Viet Tung Nguyen, just wrote. He wrote a, maybe a year ago. He was talking about this specifically, like about about that cultural gap between Vietnamese parents and Vietnamese kids and and how Vietnamese parents don't say, I love you, um, which I didn't know. Like, it would have been really helpful for me <laughs> to know that it wasn't like, it's not like a Vietnamese thing for parents to say, I love you. Like, their way of saying I love you is something like, did you eat yet? You know, their their language of love, you know, and, and there's like sort of lots of writing around this, right? Like, what is someone's language of love? Like, you know, I, I, for me, it's verbal, um, you know, that I, I want someone to verbally express it. And for my parents, I think now as an adult, I understand this, you know, their language of love was by doing right. Or by showing they were like givers, like they would give me things, but they would never say things like, Oh, I'm proud of you. Or I love you. You know, you know, it's kind of like, I think of it like traveling to Europe, you know, and like not exchanging your money, you know, and you're walking around trying to pay for stuff in dollars and no, everyone's like, get the hell out of here. You're like, what the hell's wrong? You know, it's like you just, you hadn't done the currency conversion yet. And I wish that I'd known that, or I wish that my parents had known that or somebody, you know, and it's hard to assign, <laughs> it's hard to assign responsibility in that scenario, right? Because like as a little kid, you're like, well, it's not the little kid's responsibility to navigate or know this stuff. And for parents who are new to this country and don't understand the culture, it's it's impossible for them to understand it or even to explain to their kids that. So, I mean, I think it's one of the many small tragedies that happen um, in sort of immigrant and refugee families. It makes me think of um, one of my favorite poets and philosophers, David White. He says, our conversations are not about our relationships. Our conversations are our relationships. And so I'm curious to know, how did notions of your homeland make its way into your conversations at home? And then how did notions of your homeland make its way into conversations with your friends growing up in Carlisle? Externally, I would say my we never talked, my, my friends and I never talked about Vietnam. I mean, it wasn't something that I brought up and it wasn't something that they brought up. You know, I think like, you know, at least being with like sort of my friend group, you know, who at least in high school, they were just, you know, a bunch of like punk rock misfit kids. I think we were so bound by our own feelings of not fitting in and and ostracism that like that was the thing that was the glue that held us together. So I think we were really united and connected by our commonalities. You know, in our household, you know, we didn't really talk a lot about Vietnam or what it was, you know, when it was really painful for my parents like even to this day, it's really painful for them to think about or to talk about. It's funny, like we didn't have like the meta conversation about Vietnamese culture or Vietnamese language. Like it was just, it was just something that we did. Like I think about like foods that we cooked or, you know, things that my mom made or 
you know, the fact that like, even like we took our shoes off before we went into the house, like that was just like a given, but like my, my parents never articulated as this is a thing that Vietnamese people do take your shoes off before you go in the house. Cause it's dirty or whatever. And because I didn't have a larger Vietnamese community to even reflect upon this with, right? Like it's hard for me to know like what idiosyncrasies or what cultural things were specifically my family's or what things were specifically Vietnamese. Because my family, my you know immediate and extended family were the only Vietnamese people I knew. And then otherwise everybody else was American, right? So I, I, I would imagine like what, what things are cultural and what things are idiosyncratic to my family. Like you just, like, like it all kind of gets mixed up into the same pot unless you had a larger community that you connected with. So I don't know. As a matter of your Vietnamese cultural identity, as you were growing up, what made you the most proud of being Vietnamese? Like, how did that kind of take shape? And then also, conversely, what were you most ashamed of? Like, how did that take shape? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I was ever proud of being Vietnamese. I don't know what I would be proud of. I think pride maybe implies that there is some value or currency to something, right? Like if you say like, I, you know, changed the oil on my motorcycle today. I'm really proud of that. And, and so like there's some currency or, or somebody somewhere, somebody in a group somewhere will celebrate the fact that like you were able to change the oil on your motorcycle. And I don't, I don't think I ever felt that, um, that anybody anywhere would care that I was Vietnamese other than in my family, you know, and I had such a dysfunctional relationship with my parents and my extended relatives, some, some of them anyway, that, and so, so the flip side of that, like, when did I feel ashamed of being Vietnamese? I don't, you know, like, that's, that's so tricky. You know, I don't think that I ever felt ashamed of being Vietnamese as much as I just felt, um, boy, things would be a lot easier if I were white. You know, I, I talk about that in the book, like right in the opening prologue. And, and now I know, right? Like that's, a, that's pretty naive to assume that like sort of white people have, have, you know, sort of life on easy street and everybody doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, white people have hard times too, right? And they have troubles, but it's not often that those troubles come from their being white, right? It comes from other things, you know, whereas like I think growing up in Carlisle, like I had lots of issues that came from my not being white. Um, I think any shame that I felt about being Vietnamese wasn't specifically about being Vietnamese, but it was just sort of like the difficulties and the challenges that came from being Vietnamese because of like the culture around me. So I think like that was really for me, like the, the draw to punk rock was, you know, like, the, like the rebellion or the sort of like attack on society or culture at large that came from punk rock felt really powerful to me, you know, because, because it, like, like listening to punk rock was the first time that I heard something say like, you know what, the problem isn't me. The problem is society. Like society doesn't accept me and, and I'm not the thing that's broken. Right. Um, and that was really powerful for me to hear. Um, and it, and it sort of just by, you know, sort of kismet, like I just happened to hear, you know, music like that, um, at a time when I, I needed to hear it. I really like that. Now, could you unpack what some of those difficulties were as it pertained to your sense of identity? Like what were the things that you had to deal with? Early on as a little kid, you know, it was like, you know, sort of like playground bullying, like kids calling me names, um, like, you know, racial slurs, um, 
you know, and then eventually it was sort of this idea of when you're the only Vietnamese kid, you know, never mind the only Asian kid, right, in your class for eight to ten years, you know, and then and then eventually it's like just like a handful of kids. And then when you're ostracized, right, or when you're when you're picked on, like like kids usually zero in on that very thing. You start to think like, oh, this is the reason why kids are picking on me, right? So like the, like very early on there was like sort of that stuff, you know, and then sort of like the more overt racism. No, and then when I was a senior in high school, like things started coming up with adults, you know, in my community, you know, like there was like a mechanic at the gas station that I worked at, you know, who said some things to me and I was like about like sort of like Asian people. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I didn't, I didn't even realize, like I was in such a bubble, right? Like I used this like talking about like Asians and math. And I was like, wait, that's a thing. Like, I didn't even know, <laughs> you know, I was like, I don't, cause there were like, if you're not around other Asian people and people aren't talking about your Asianness, like you don't even realize like what cultural stereotypes there are, you know? And, and I was like, wait, Asians are good at math. I was like, I'm terrible at math, you know, like, am I a bad Asian, you know, <laughs> or any, you know, and then in the college process, like that was super weird too. And then I experienced like the flip side of that, like in a college um, alumni interview, you know, where the alumni interviewer said to me that my grades were really good, but that was what he expected from Asian students. And I was like, wait, like, you're not seeing me as an individual here. You know, like you're seeing this as like a, this is like racialized for you all of a sudden. So, so I think those are the things that made me realize that, that I couldn't control how people saw me. And, and that came from racism, right? And like the racialized experience. What I find to be really curious about what you're explaining here is I've come to this sort of definition of what identity means. And for me, it means my identity goes to where people's attention of me goes. And so your example really demonstrates you don't see yourself as Asian until somebody brings it to your attention. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, t I totally agree. Like, I think it's this, it's a delicate balance, right? Between, um, well, I mean, James Baldwin has a great quote, right? He says, you can either tell the world how you want to be treated or the world will tell you how they're going to treat you. But I think it's like a two-way street, and I think it's a, there's always going to be tension there, right, in between how you see yourself, right, or, you know, how I see myself and then how the world sees me. And, and um, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit, I mean, I think it's definitely what, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois articulates, right, in that idea of, like, the, you know, dual consciousness, right, that, that the black experience is I am here in my own body, and then I'm all, I have this awareness also of how I am perceived by white people, right? I mean, I think he articulates that, but I think there's a lot of that dual consciousness experience for all sorts of marginalized groups, right? Groups who are, aren't in power, right? Um, and and oftentimes, like, the thing that doesn't give them access to power is, right, their race, their gender, their ethnicity, whatever. And so what I'd like to talk to you about right now, Fook, is your writing of the book Saigon. Writing is a very interesting and beautiful and important process. And so I'm curious to know, what did you learn about yourself through the writing of your actual memoir? Okay, so I'll say this, like, I don't think I could have written the book if I hadn't done a lot of therapy prior to it, like maybe 10 years prior to writing the book. You know, I found out that we were going to have kids um, or a kid, you know, and, and I thought, okay, you know, I did some real soul searching and I thought, you know, if I'm going to be a parent and I'm fully committed to being the best parent that I can be, like, I knew I had some stuff with my parents and, you know, just if I had all this sort of baggage around being a son, right, like, how does that weigh on me as a father? And so I knew I had to 
figure that stuff out. So I went to like three or four years of like counseling, you know, like therapy. And, um, and so that put me in a really great place to like be able to talk about trauma around abuse and trauma around racism and um, metabolize it a little bit. You know, I think that that process of figuring things out and, and, you know, teasing out those threads is long and hard and, and it's cyclical too. So I think when I wrote the book, I was, I, I felt pretty well healed from a lot of things because I, I don't think I could have written about them without that healing process of, of going to counseling. But the thing that I did learn, you know, I think I wrote about my parents in a much more empathetic way. So it's funny, like my editor, when I was writing, you know, she would say, okay, like, can you, can you flesh out your parents a little bit more in this scene? Or like, just add a little bit of like a detail about your parents to humanize them. And I was like, yeah, sure, I can totally do that. Like, I, I had that information. But, you know, I think my default is, you know, because I haven't lived with my parents since I was a teenager was to, you know, like, I, I was writing about them in kind of a, you know, two dimensional way a little bit, like in, the, in that first go. And so in the process of writing about them and fleshing them out as real people, like, I think that really helped humanize them for me. And it was the first time I was like, oh, like, they were going through some terrible shit, you know, and like, so that was incredible, even though like my relationship with them is, is sort of, you know, we're, we're at a pretty good place, you know, um, thanks to other things. But then also my relationship with Carlisle, you know, like, I recognize that, like, again, like, you grow up in a place like Carlisle, and you think, oh, Carlisle is racist, right? Or Carlisle has racist people. And, and you think it's just Carlisle because like, I, I didn't really go anywhere else. I didn't live anywhere else. So I didn't know. And, you know, I was assigning all of this blame to Carlisle when in fact, it's, it's part of a larger cultural national problem. Like, I didn't think like, oh, racism, that's America's problem. You know, like as a kid, right? You know, you're like 13 or 14. You're like, oh, racism. Oh, that's Carlisle. Like, I just remember visiting my cousins on in New York and thinking like, well, if I lived in New York, there wouldn't be any racism in New York, <laughs> you know, because there are people of all ethnicities everywhere, you know, and like, of course, that's not true, right? Um, so yeah, so I think I learned a, an incredible amount about Carlisle, about my parents. But I think like the learning that I did about myself, I'd already done sort of prior to it, which which really made the writing of the memoir possible. I think if I hadn't done the heavy lifting and counseling, you know, a decade prior, I, I wouldn't have been able to write the book. Yeah, I, I can I can 100% empathize. I think writing your memoir is really this experience where you actually face your demons. And in our experiences as, as human beings here, it's like you will eventually face your demons. And I can't remember I heard this, but if you're not facing your demons, they're in your soul lifting weights. And so it's this thing that you eventually have to kind of confront. Otherwise, you're never really facing the person that you are most sensitive to is who you are and how you perceive yourself to be. That's why I asked the question. Cause I, I think, I think we don't really actually know what we think until we express it to the world, either through words or either through writing, right? Like I don't think I'm in this place in my life right now where I'm trying to process whether or not thoughts are actually real. And so I'm coming to the, this place where I'm realizing that they're not real until I say them or I share them with the world. And so that's why I think this process of writing your memoir is, is actually something that's just such an intellectual feat because you're really looking yourself in the mirror and saying, who am I and what was my lived experience? So I'm really curious to know, um, what is something that you would still love to learn about your parents that you haven't yet learned? 
Oh man, everything. Yeah, I, I so know so little about them. Oh, so I'll say this, like, so, <laughs> so two years ago, when I was in the middle of writing the memoir, they, um, they actually um, were visiting me and they were feeling anxious about it, the book. And um, they said, well, you know, the problem with your book is that you aren't going to, you don't know all the facts and you don't know the truth. And if you knew it, you would fall out of your chair. And I was like, okay, well, why don't you tell me? And they're like, we're not going to tell, we can't tell you. Like it's, it would be irresponsible of us. And I was like, all right. So <laughs> anyway, you know, and going back to that, like that healing process or like, I don't know if it's healing, but you know, having the relationship with my parents, you know, there's like a great quote from Oscar Wilde and he says, you know, selfishness isn't living your life the way you want it you want to live it. it selfishness is asking other people to live their lives the way you want them to live so i think like once i stopped expecting my parents to be people they couldn't be um and once i think my parents sort of gave, gave up <laughs> trying to expect me to be a person that i couldn't be like i think you know a lot of the tension was just diffused um in our relationship so, Fook, as we wrap up here, I'd, I'd like to ask all my guests one last question, and it's this. What's your message for the world? I, you know, I wrote my book and wrote about myself in the messiest and sort of most complex way possible. And because I, I feel like we don't embrace our complexity enough. One, I think we're complicated people, and I think it's important for us to embrace the complexity of our stories. And two, I think it's so important for us to listen to each other's stories with um, compassion and empathy um, and understanding to see each other's humanity. So yeah, so I think embracing our complexity and uh, it's listening to each other's stories. Fook, thank you for your message and um, thank you for sharing your story, man. I appreciate you. Oh, thanks, Bakhtash. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us on the Stories of Transformation podcast. This podcast is produced by Dana Drahos. Audio engineering by Joe Genjemi. Marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esor. If you love Stories of Transformation, you can help more people find us by leaving a review and sharing the episodes far and wide. We're grateful for all your support. And on behalf of the Stories of Transformation team, I'd like to say... Thank you. Okay, see you next time.